Frontiers in 3D Visionary Speak Roundtable. My name is Sue Grepper and I'm the Editorial Director at New Frontiers. For those of you who are not familiar with us, our mission at New Frontiers is to educate and foster discussions among thought leaders and innovators who are working to transform drug discovery using 3D in vitro technologies. In previous years, we've done this by organizing intensive in-person one-day symposium. But like many meeting organizers, we've gone digital this past year. Until it's safe to hold in-person symposiums again, we've decided to adapt our program into a series of key opinion leader roundtables and offer a free news digest to keep you informed of advancements in the field. Today, we have a panel including three distinguished type 1 diabetes experts who will be discussing emerging perspectives of this disease's pathogenesis, prevention, and treatment. After introducing these panelists, we will move on to two major topics for discussion. After this portion, and as time permits, panelists will answer questions submitted by the audience in the Q&A window during the discussion. So, to encourage your involvement, I'd like to point out the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. You can use this function to ask questions at any point during this roundtable, and we'll queue them up for our panelists to answer during the Q&A portion. If your question is to a particular panelist, please feel free to mention their name in the question. You can also use the chat function to post live commentary and share your opinions with the audience in real time, or if you're having any technical difficulties with Zoom that we can assist with. A quick note about the chat function, when you post a comment, you can control whether it is directed only to the panelists or to both the panelists and all attendees. And now it is my great pleasure to introduce today's panelists, including Borchak Yeseldig, who will be moderating the scientific discussion. These panelists will be discussing two major topics, one being major discoveries and knowledge gaps in our understanding of type 1 diabetes pathogenesis, and the second topic, emerging therapies to treat or prevent type 1 diabetes and their potential challenges. But first, allow me to introduce the panelists brought together today who approach this disease from very different perspectives, representing pancreatic, islet, and beta cell expertise, as well as immunology expertise. First, we have Professor Matthias Hebrock, Professor and Director at the Diabetes Center at the University of California at San Francisco. His laboratory has made seminal contributions to our understanding of how embryonic single signals control the fetal development of the pancreas and its insulin-producing beta cells. Professor Hebrock's recent work has implemented the information gained from these studies to generate functional beta cells from human stem cell populations for cell therapy purposes. He advises academic diabetes centers throughout the US and serves on scientific advisory boards of several biotech and stem cell companies. Next, we have Professor Matthias von Harreth, who is vice president and senior medical officer at Novo Nordisk, and also professor in the Center for Autoimmunity and Inflammation at the La Jolla Institute for Immunology. Professor von Harreth's work focuses on clinical translation of immune-based interventions in autoimmune and metabolic diseases. He is also heavily involved in refining early phase one and phase two clinical trials for such diseases in order to optimize strategies for phase three trials and drug approval. This includes translation from various preclinical models to human interventions, optimization of immunotherapies and the relative ranking, assessment of combination therapies, and development of biomarkers as primary or secondary outcomes. We also have Professor Mark Peekman, Senior Director of Autoimmunity and Type 1 Diabetes Research at Sanofi and Professor in Clinical Immunology at King's College London. Professor Peekman's research has been instrumental in designing and implementing strategies to bring disease-modifying therapies to patients with autoimmunity. He has made pivotal contributions to our understanding of the role of T lymphocytes in the etiology of type 1 diabetes, 
by identifying critical targets for T cells that appear to have a role in the destruction of insulin producing cells and key immunological pathways through which this damage is mediated. He has spearheaded peptide immunotherapy for type one diabetes and has taken roles in designing and implementing mechanistic studies in the context of clinical trials of novel immunotherapies. Finally, we have Dr. Borchak Yeseldik, Vice President of Diabetes Research at Inspiro, who will moderate the scientific discussion today. Dr. Yeseldig's research involves the development of standardized high throughput and physiologically relevant disease models for the study of type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes with primary or stem cell derived human pancreatic tissues. Her research, partnered with numerous pharma, biotech, and academic groups, aims to accelerate the clinical translation of novel discoveries and contribute to the efficiency and reproducibility of pancreatic ILEC research. And with that, I'd now like to pass the discussion to Borchek for the first key topic, major discoveries and knowledge gaps in our understanding of type one diabetes pathogenesis. Thank you, Sue. Thank you very much, everyone. It is my distinct pleasure to uh, moderate this discussion with distinguished researchers such as yourselves. And all of you have strong ties to both basic and applied Taiwan diabetes research. And we are looking forward to hearing your perspectives and your research. But before that, I would like to start with um, talking with our current understanding and the, uh, of the pathogenesis of type one diabetes, how it changed since the early years of early models of the Eisenbach. Um, can we start with you, uh, Matthias von Hert? Yes. So, um, uh... There has been a period of time, as uh, we all know, where we mostly understood the pathogenesis of type 1 diabetes from mouse models. That uh, experienced uh, a major change with the ability to access human organs in a more systematic fashion. First to the import National Pancreatic Organ Donor Consortium and then also to other consortia like HPAP. What has changed? I think we have to adopt a much more beta cell centric view on the pathogenesis. And what I mean with that is that first, there seems to be some insults on the beta cells and we don't know, they could be immune, but it could also be other things, viruses, neuronal. And then these beta cells uh, in the pancreas seem to unmask themselves to the immune system. In our opinion, uh, we think that the cells that then from the immune system are the main culprits uh, who destroy the beta cells. And, and um, Mark Peekman has uh, discovered these epitopes and uh, worked on them uh, for a long time. That these cells, CD8 cells, are already there sitting in the pancreas, usually sitting quiet. And then through various immune mechanisms, one of them probably the upregulation of MHC class one, a recognition molecule, they become visible to the immune system. So it's in a way, a dual duality where the beta cell unmasks itself and the immune system then starts seeing the beta cells. And this is how these deleterious processes come together over time. I think the, uh, the other curious thing is that uh, until uh, relatively short prior to diagnosis, maybe a year or so, the beta cell mass manages to maintain itself reasonably well, and then it decreases uh, relatively rapidly, sort of ending in a cataclysm, almost like climate change. I think that's in, in a nutshell how we understand it these days. Some matters still 
up for debate. Maybe we get some lively debate today about this. <laughs> Could you also maybe briefly comment on the residual beta cell mass and function in maybe a recently diagnosed uh, type 1 diabetes and the longstanding diabetes and how this presents new opportunities for the disease treatment? Yeah, I think a uh, very good question. Uh, definitely the beta cells after diagnosis, meaning that when uh, patients uh, become hyperglycemic and they at least need some insulin, many of them are still there. Many of them doesn't mean 90%, but a certain percentage. And it seems that if you take them out, and the colleagues in Oslo have done this elegantly, in vitro, they can regain their function. And this potential to regain their function is therapeutically important because you could say if you give an immune therapy or combined therapy at the onset of diabetes, then you can preserve some beta cell function. And we think preserving beta cell function is important for patients, not only for glycemic control, but also for their whole journey with the disease that commences at the latest at the time when they are being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Thank you. Mark, may I refer to you for maybe um, underlying a little bit of the recent developments in how the beta cells and the immune cells are interacting and what is the you know, recent um, breakthroughs and how we understand the immune system uh, from the immune system perspective, how the disease is, is developing or um, triggered? Yeah, I think, you know, Matthias describes it very well. And, and I'm a very T-cell centric investigator in this field and always have been. And, and, you know, I, I, I fundamentally agree the CD8 T cell, beta cell interaction from the histological perspective, from the mechanistic perspective is very compelling as a storyline. Um, what intrigues me and, you know, when I, when I start to think, well, what else is going on is, is, is what other observations we make at the same time. Um, and a couple of them I think are, are interesting. The first, is, is that in some, some, some individuals, we see a quite pervasive infiltration of B lymphocytes. They're, they're activated, they're at all stages of maturation. There's some intriguing sense that they might be interacting with the CD8 T cells. So, so what's that partnership in crime about? You know, how, what are the molecules uh, and processes that govern that I think is, is, is very intriguing. And how does that um, shape, shape the interaction of the CD8 T cell with the beta cell. Um, and in particular, we know that removal of those B cells, B lymphocytes, um, can be therapeutically uh, effective. So, so what's that interaction all about? So that's another cell we need to understand. And then I think, you know, Matthias mentioned the, the HLA class 1 expression, which we understand, you know, molecularly. But there's also HLA-E expression, which I think is very intriguing. And does that have a role? Um, and, you know, can you link that to emerging data, for example, the very recent paper on, on high-risk children uh, where, where, you know, th there appears to be um, a sort of natural killer cell signature um, in the peripheral blood, you know, is that telling us something about another player in this process? So, um, you know, totally agree with Matthias, it's, it's down to the beta cell and probably the CD8 T cell in a, in a, a large majority of subjects, but what are these other players and and you know what are they telling us? I think is, is, is going to be news for the future. Mm -hmm. Can you also maybe comment a little bit of the disease heterogeneity versus the contribution of age and uh, what your perspectives on this are? <laughs> I will uh, because it's a controversial area. It's mm -hmm. it's you know there are a couple of um, kind of 
um, uh, you know, provocative uh, reviews out there. I think it's a, it's a poorly researched area in a systematic way because of exactly what you said. People study children, people study adults. We don't really understand uh, whether there's a continuum or a complete change in the phenotype of the disease between those two. So we absolutely need to, to nail that. I think some really big clues um, around HLA um, and, 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 uh, and, and first antigens that are recognized, that's obviously pretty important. Um, so that's at least two, two major camps you can, you can fall into there, I think. So, so let's start with the, I guess you'd call that the low hanging fruit, the, the things that we, we, we know are trustworthy, reproduced in a number of studies. Let's understand that. And then let's, let's make heterogeneity more complicated if we want to. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I will then um, maybe want to talk about how to study disease and how to actually understand and you know reproduce these findings in vitro in the lab or in in vivo maybe. So um, my next question then to Matthias Hebrock. So MPOD obviously has has made pivotal uh, contributions to our understanding of the human type one diabetes, and is continuing to do so. But um, especially because I know what you're working on, I want to ask you what you think will be the next generation of groundbreaking research tools uh, for the study of Taiwan diabetes in vitro. Let's start with in vitro. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Bush. <laughs> yes, I, I just want to point out just from the get-go that Endpoint, mm -hmm. I believe, has done an amazing job. Mm -hmm. We've learned so much about the human disease and, and how it has been developing and how it presents itself. But we also have to acknowledge that if you look at pathological samples, you have a snapshot, right? And essentially, you look at a specific time point in the disease, and that is a relevant one, but it doesn't tell you so much about how the disease has developed, what the trigger is, how it starts, and, and how it progresses over time. So as you alluded to, my lab has been studying uh, stem cells for quite some time now, and we have developed technologies and, and protocols to use these stem cells, human stem cells, and turn them into what we now believe are functional islet cells, not just beta cells, but actually islet cells, so alpha cells and delta cells as well. And therefore, we are therefore are now in the, in the position to generate at will cells that are reflecting many of the properties that our cells have in, in vivo. Now, colleagues of mine are also using very similar technologies to use, again, human stem cells. In some cases, we can use the same stem cells, IPS cell, for example, derived from a diabetic or a patient who is, does not have diabetes, and then generate T cells as well as B cells and look at how they, how they talk to each other, how they interact with each other. Now, the, the other thing I should point out, uh, that there, there's this one revolution I just mentioned, which is that we can now generate mature functional cells out of stem cells. That wasn't possible 10 or so years ago. It's a huge step forward. The other huge step that I think was, was, was done is to develop these gene editing tools that we now all are using, uh, particularly the CRISPR technology. This just has been an absolute game changer because you now can go in and you can modify genes at will in stem cells, in human stem cells, that was just not possible, again, five, eight years ago. Now we can go in, we can modify T cell receptors, for example, in, um, in, in um, immune cells. Uh, we can modify molecules that have been presented to those. We can try to understand what is going on in the immune system in type 1 diabetic patients versus those that don't have it. And again, we can use the information that's coming as Matthias said it before, out of NPAT and APAP and, and other of those consortia that again have done a fantastic job 
if we can now incorporate this into an experimental system where we can make changes. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Matthias, um, especially from our collaborations with you, I know you're also, um, and I'm referring to Matthias von Herard, sorry, um, I know your interest on also organic systems in, in, with primary tissues. Perhaps uh, you want to elaborate a little bit on, on your goals there and, uh, you know, in disease modeling on the dish, in the dish. I, I think it's, it's a tremendous opportunity. Um, because we have come a long way. First, mice, then we understand uh, the human uh, pathology as a snapshot, like, like uh, Matthias said. And now we have some opportunity to rebuild some pathogenetic aspects of type 1 diabetes as we understand them in vitro and have then the dynamics of the process unfolding. We can use it to better understand the dynamics and the timing of certain processes because and we can also use it to understand uh, which molecules are important, so genetic editing, like Matthias referred to, and then for testing of interventions and drugs in vitro. There are certain things we cannot do. It will be challenging to build a whole islet model with immune cells with full vascularization. It will be difficult to put the nerves in there. These are pie in the sky type of things. You can, of course, elaborate. You have your lymph node here, then there's another, well, there's the islets, and then you have the liver here and the nervous system. But we can build it in a step stepwise fashion. And I think it can be extremely useful uh, to understand certain dynamic aspects of the disease. And I liked uh, the practical aspect of rebuilding uh, the pathology the way we understand it and then build on the matters. And the genetic editing is going to be uh, very important in that respect. You could envision you make islets from stem cells, edited or non-edited at some point from uh, diabetic individuals. So I, I see this as a very promising future avenue. Mm -hmm. As you know, our group also published recently um, genetic or gene expression modification and using human primary islets in a more high throughput fashion and then being able to modify um, the gene expression of the interest gene of interest in uh, these uh, islet marker tissues and as I think some of you are aware we are using these islet marker tissues together with PBMCs and the very CTLs that Mark's group um, isolated uh, many years ago so um, do you think we could establish some uh, sort of libraries, for example, for certain uh, antigen specificity of CTLs, or do you think these uh, global efforts can can contribute to standardization of these tools? What, what do you see there? What what can be done globally speaking to um, develop tools that will be enabling to more than you know a, a limited group of researchers? I think standardization will be very important, and mm -hmm. I like this about these systems, and that will be critical in conjunction with early readouts of beta cell function. We, we all remember in the old days, we just used to kill the beta cells and do a chromium release assay, which was really rather crude, and mm -hmm. also the very small readout window, and now we can read out the function of the beta cells. I think that, be, that will be very, very helpful, and we can use these models uh, to address, for example, very important questions uh, such as which molecules, like MHC we discussed, are important for immune recognition and conversely, is it sufficient if you eliminate those, for example, to have stem cell-derived islet transplant succeeds and so forth, or what else do you need to eliminate to have that work better in a future transplant setting? So I think that will be very helpful. In terms of libraries, um, I. 
I think uh, Matthias and Mark will have more ideas about this, about the heterogeneity maybe uh, of different patient donors and so forth. I, so I let, I let them take that from here and their ideas, um, how, how, that, how that could uh, help in the future. Well, it's going to be important that we don't learn just from one one clone. That will be the the, the re recapitulation of the mistake of learning from one mouse, right? So, mm -hmm. so I, yes. think, I think I think libraries. Um, you know, I'm, I'm I've been very interested in in um, in understanding T cell receptor affinity and its role. I, I think we have to get some diversity in the system too to really understand uh, um, what what what's what, what are the, the key the key interactions. And how they play out. So, so yes, I completely agree with you. Yeah, on the cellular basis, of course, you're right. I mean, uh, if you if you generate, which Borsak has, has just uh, told us, um, the, the being able to use primary analysis is, is great because I mean, still the gold standard. I mean, this is what we have in our body now. And the the stem cells, um, the, the benefit of those is that you can generate as many as you want from the same cell cells, mm -hmm. right? You, that's, um, you can generate again, as I mentioned. Immune cells, CD8 works quite well right now. A colleague of mine who sees Ash generates some really fantastic macrophages, M1 and M2. Um, CD4 is still seems to be a little bit more of a difficulty, but I think people are moving towards that. So it would be from the same cell source. Mm -hmm. Then you can get IPS lines from different patient populations. Once you have established a clone that works very, very well for you, then I think all of your experiments can be done in the same genetic background. But as Mark just said, you can't do all of the experiments in just one line. If you mm -hmm. do that, then I think you're going to limit yourself again. So it's it's going to be the balance of of, of being um, having enough lines to work with, but also not being too broad to essentially diffuse your efforts because these things are, are work intensive, labor intensive, and expensive. Great. One has to say uh, that that the in vitro systems they are more suitable for high throughput, uh, yeah. for example, than compared to to a humanized mouse and so forth. So I oh, think absolutely. I mean we, we can we, do, you know millions of these islets on yes. a weekly basis, and it's just it's, it's really right now the the limitation is, is like for many things funding and and capable hands. It's it's not yet a technology where you can just say like you know um, a technician grad student a postdoc can learn within a week or so. There's there are labs out several around the world who can do it. So it's I think it becomes an established technology, but it's not an off the shelf technology yet. So there's you really need to, it's, it's more cooking than science still. Meaning you really need to know how to spice at the right time, and it's it's an art. Yes, and my group is trying to write at least a recipe for the dish <laughs> that I can say, uh, but I agree it's still also cooking for us. Um, so I actually want to steer down the conversation a little bit towards the clinical um, aspects because, you know, of course, the beta cell clusters derived from stem cells represent uh, this unlimited source of insulin producing cells, obviously, for also transplantation. But um, I'm wondering how close do you think, um, Matthias, Matthias Hebrook, um, how close do you think we are actually to clinical applications and what are the challenges lying ahead? Great question. Uh, you know, we are there. There are actually commercial entities out there. And as a full disclosure, I've been on the SAB for, for several of those, uh, not recently, but, but SEMA, quite by Vertex. Uh, is, is moving into clinical trials uh, and, and the same is true for Vice, a company out of San Diego. 
and they uh, essentially have already generated beta cells or beta-like cells out of stem cells, put them into devices, and at least Vicer has done this, and essentially have put them into patients. And, and Vertex is, 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 is trying to do this now. So uh, there are challenges out there, of course, uh, but these challenges in part would also be there with just normal eyelid transplantation, normal quote-unquote from cadaveric donors where we would get the eyelids from, and that have to do with the immune recognition and then rejection. But again, I, I'm, I'm very hopeful there because I think, as I mentioned to you, these gene editing tools, and my lab has been doing this, so actually we have, as well as other labs, um, we, we have modified MHC molecules and we see some, some responses in which we can generate lines in cells that we would call immune cloaked, where the immune system upon transplantation is not able to immediately recognize this, but to accept these cells, hopefully for the long run, we don't know this yet, as their own and therefore protect them rather than destroy them. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, again, the, the, the promise of the stem cell technology, while still in the beginning, in the, in the initial phases, right, we're still in the childhood area here, I think over time, the, the promise is, is going to be fulfilled. And I think this, this is going to be how we, at some point, will treat patients with diabetes. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe then I have a bit of a contradictory question to this. Do you think we have the right quality control standards for, you know, comparing these stem cell derived islets? Can do we have the right tools to benchmark all these efforts around the world? How global are we? Uh, how comparative are is that, yeah. is the research we're doing? Great question. So we. Actually, if you look at the protocols that have been developed by many groups, including mine, they're not that different. And essentially what they are based on, almost all of them are on what we've learned from embryology. I mean, I'm by training, I'm a development biologist. So we tried for, for decades to understand the molecules and signals that are being provided at the different stages of differentiation from an early embryonic stem cell in our body in the ICM towards the, you know, the definitive endoderm and the pancreas and the endocrine part, the progenitor, and then the mature beta cells. So there is a, a lot of information that we have gathered and we're using this to essentially direct the cells. And that is, I think, universally is being used by the protocols that have been shown to be really good. Now, at the end, we, we still have problems in generating a fully, fully, fully mature insulin-producing cell or islet cells. However, having said this, what we also have learned is that there is something in vivo, there's a secret source that we don't fully understand. So if you transplant these structures that they generate from human stem cells under in vitro conditions and put them in vivo, then they actually do mature. And so there's a further step that we have not quite yet uncovered, mm-hmm. but I think it's a, it's a matter of time and, and people will get there. Now, the, 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 the comparison uh, at the end is still with, with the gold standard, which is a human eyelid. But as you very well know, some human eyelid preparations are superb and just really outstanding, and, and some others are not. And so even there, the gold standard shifts depending on the source that you have. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I'm going to throw in there, just to, to make it even more fun, when I was in, in, in school, in, in university, I was told that there's one beta cell and that is it. That's not true anymore. We now know that there are different versions of beta cells, that there's a heterogeneity, that there are different subtypes, subclasses of beta cells. And therefore, to define the gold standard, meaning you have to generate that cell versus the cell that next to it, which is also a beta cell, 
makes it a little bit more fuzzy. So um, all of this together, I think we're very close with these stem cell differentiations. There's still room to go. There's a science. Mm -hmm. Especially because allograph rejection still remains to be one of the big challenges. And maybe we find one beta cell is more resistant than the other to the insult of the immune tech, and maybe you prefer to make one versus the other. And that's, yeah, still- And then it has to do possibly with the differentiation state. So we know, we appear to know that there's a cell that we call the hub cell, it's almost like a general. Yeah. Uh, it produces less insulin, produces less of the differentiation markers, like another transcription factor we call MAF-A. But it seems to be really involved in directing the other cells, which are the soldiers to you know, secrete insulin upon demand. Now, these hub cells are slightly, we would call them almost de-differentiated. They don't smell exactly like a typical beta cell, and therefore the immune system doesn't seem to be recognizing them as much as other cells. So these are emerging concepts. We don't know this yet. But um, yes, we need to study this. And I, I do think that, again, with this gene editing tools that are just super powerful, we will be able to just more make these modifications we need to hopefully at some point evade um, immune recognition and distraction. Mm -hmm. For the next question then to Mark, do you think um, transplantation, either stem cell-derived islets or native islets, do you think it's possible without, uh, you know, long-term function, do you think it's possible without immunotherapy? You know, I think I think what Matthias is doing is a form of immunotherapy. I think the immune cloaking mm -hmm. okay, that he yeah. described is clearly a way to go. It mm -hmm. relies on a, a very clear understanding of the... Um, of the molecular pathways and cellular pathways of, of beta cell destruction. It may be that, you know, his cloaking doesn't work first time, and, but, he, but he learns what else he needs to cloak. I think it, it, it's going to be an iterative process, but of course it's a, it's a way to, um, to, to push the field along. It, it, it won't feel that we've wasted our efforts if, you know, if, if he comes up with an answer for, for sure. Mm -hmm. And um, do you do? Does anyone have another thing to add to this? Because I will then move. On. Yes, please, Matthias, go ahead. Uh, just very brief. I, I think the the uh, the future vision will be you immune cloak these uh, new islets, and then you start fine tuning your immune therapies with combinations and tapering them down. So as the burden for the patient with immune modulation is not high anymore, mm -hmm. because we start from a full islet transplantation program. And then if they immune cloak, we can taper this down. You might have drugs that enhance beta cell function. You might have antigenic tolerance, something very dear to, to <laughs> marks in my heart, but not an easy, easy topic. And then a combination of these factors. And this is also where the immune therapists and the islettologist or beta cell dologist, where this all converges in a way. And hopefully in, in, the, in the next decade, we're gonna see this Similar stepwise, it's not going to be an all or nothing, but it's stepwise, like in oncology, you approach better and better treatments, better and better beta cells, and that will hopefully result in tangible alternatives for patients so they can, in a meaningful way, reconstitute their beta cells, I think would be, would be fantastic. How often do you think, sorry, please, Mark. No, I, I, I wanted to say, you know, it, it, somewhat provocatively, um, you know, there's also a possibility that Matthias is, is so, Matthias Hevrock is solving a problem that, that we won't have in 20 or 30 years time if we have cracked um, prevention. And, you know, um, the, the, the paper that came in, out in 2019 showing that kind of mindset for immunotherapy, I think, is, is, is another way that we might tackle this disease. Um, and then we wouldn't need 
or we, we would need have less need for the for the beta cell replacement. So so who knows you know which which track will 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 win out in in the next decades. I think this is this is a critical point, Mark. You know, we, we're trying a lot of things and we have to do this in parallel. We just don't know what at the end is going to be the key thing. Uh, prevention, I, I I do hope that we're going to come up with something that actually, you know, it's always easier to keep the horse in the barn, right, than to, to catch it after it's... it's that already, would be so nice. Right? But having said this, of course, we have so many patients right now who have the disease already and, and who need to be taken care of. Um, and we're not talking about this today, but... Type two at the end, the end stage of type two is, is, is the equivalent of type one. I mean, your beta cells are really not functioning anymore. And there are patients who, of course, need to have insulin injections to survive. So, um, yes, you're absolutely right. There's, there's a lot of things we need to learn. There's a lot of things we need to do in parallel. And uh, Matthias von Herat said something interesting. So the beta cell biologist and uh, immunologist converging. How often do you think actually they manage to work together? Do you also feel like there's enough consorted efforts to bring these two worlds together? Well, uh, it, they have been pretty separate for a while with different fundings and consortia. <clears throat> Based on this already, uh, um, I don't know how many years ago, uh, we made a little coalition in the, in the US where we converge actually very regularly because the cross-learning is, is, is so important. And uh, I don't know how many things I have learned over the past decade from, from the other Matthias, but it's increasing and it's a big pile and it's super interesting. So we, we, should, we should do a lot of this. And I think it's a good time. There's now uh, uh, this big uh, Hirn consortium funded by NIH where there is immunologists and beta cell biologists coming together and talking. I think uh, they, these are very fruitful, fruitful endeavors where, where all of us learn a lot and can then hone our approaches in a more efficient way when we see sort of what's possible in the other camp and where this is. So, mm -hmm. Sammy, I just want to chime in. What I've learned from the other Matthias on, on the other side of immunology is, is exactly what he's just saying. It's just uh, helped me to, to modify my approaches because uh, we, we need to talk to each other. Last thing, there are foundations out there like the Hemsley Trust who has had a, um, a workshop where actually the three of us, Mark, Matthias, and, and I were for a couple of days in, uh, in, in a remote spot and uh, talked to each other. And, and, and these things I think are really, really important because you, we really have different classes of, of scientists train, trained in, 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 in different areas. And we need to talk to each other if you want to solve these issues. Great. So I want to switch to Mark and ask, um, basically, of course, your research made uh, seminal contributions to our understanding of how the T cells play a role in, in type 1 diabetes. Um, but you have recently um, maybe left some of this basic research behind and moved to a new position in pharma. And I want to understand a little bit better what triggered this change and what your primary objectives are in this new role. Sure. I mean, to be clear, I didn't leave science. I mean, there's a lot of great science and a lot I of great basic, science. but sorry about um, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. I, you know, I, it was a personal decision. I felt I had, uh, you know, pursued a track. It had led to, as you say, some discoveries. Um, I had conducted some clinical trials, but as a, as a, as a one man band, obviously with my collaborators, um, you know, there's only so much you can do. And the idea of joining a, a large organization, Whose, whose remit is immunotherapy, um, 
sort of was very appealing. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I saw several opportunities there. I think uh, fundamentally there are issues around type 1 diabetes that are not just about the beta cell and, and, and CD8 T cells, um, and, and that therefore cross over a, a number of other immunological diseases. Immune regulation is at the heart of just about every uh, autoimmune disease. And there are drugs that people are developing for that. They're not thinking about type one, but could I, could I be in a place where I could shape that thinking? Um, you know, that was one of my, my considerations. And then, you know, to get the chance to play with some of these wonderful new technologies. Uh, it, it is just mind boggling um, what, what, what pharma, pharma companies, biotechs, investigators are doing right now. And, um, you know, to, to be able to take that chance to do that in type one diabetes, you know, who, who wouldn't do that? So, so it's driven by a number of considerations, um, but, but for sure, I, I didn't leave science. <laughs> and what are your, you know, um, current primary objectives that you're tackling, you know, imminently? Uh, so I'm, you know, I, 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 I dived into a portfolio that, that was um, somewhat uh, early stage. So we have some, some assets that, that are designed around autoimmunity. So they're not just for type 1 diabetes. So that's a, mm -hmm. a new challenge for me. Uh, and then, as I said, can I think about how those could be leveraged towards type 1? That's mm -hmm. a big conversation that has to be had in a very large organization mm -hmm. that perhaps wasn't previously you know, didn't have this in its, in its target mm -hmm. disease. So that's, that's quite a challenge in itself, just mm -hmm. to get, and it'd be interesting to get Matthias's view on that, just to get people to be thinking about type one as an autoimmune disease that is tractable to immunotherapy. That's, that's quite a challenge. Um, and, and then, you know, we, as I said, we, we're beginning to look at some of these emerging technologies and whether they're suitable. Because I think the thing about type one, if you want to design immunotherapies specifically for the disease, they've got to be pretty smart. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a therapeutic index here that we need to be aware of. There's a pediatric component that we need to be aware of. So, so can we be smart in, in our design? I think those were all the, the kind of challenges that I'm, that I'm working with right now. Thank you. And, and Matisse von Herrad, your recent um, manuscript uh, publication also describes the outcomes of this uh, phase two clinical study that investigates the combination of immunomodulation and beta cell supportive therapy. I want to also hear from you a little bit um, where, you know, why you're focusing in combination therapies and, and, you know, also maybe you can deliberate a little bit more on this paper and the, the study as well. Well, we, we, it has always been my dream to do combination therapies <clears throat> for type 1 diabetes. Mm -hmm. uh, we discussed the pathology, and this was a combination therapy we did uh, with the uh, support of Novo Nordisk. It was a big, probably largest to date adult trial in the recent onset diabetes, where we combined an immune modulator, anti-interleukin-21, mm -hmm. with a cell-specific compound, in, these, in this case, GLP-1s. And uh, we managed to, with the combination therapy, to preserve beta cell function as assessed by C-peptide. And I think combinations are very important because you can tackle the disease from different pathogenetic angles. And um, I think uh, as it was similar for me as it was for Mark, um, so I, I I don't need to reiterate this. The, the pharma industry will play a very important role in tackling the disease. I think I see my role a bit as a champion to keep on the ball in a complicated area where the risk is high. 
I, I should say also for the future for antigenic therapies for prevention, I think I envision a field where more and more not only collaborations between pharma, true collaborations between pharma and academic investigators emerge more and more, but also where collaborations between different large pharma companies actually uh, might make a lot of sense because we are all in, in the same boat, in my opinion, and it's a complicated disease for type 1 diabetes. It's because of that, because it's complicated, also risky, and um, it has been a good ride so far. If I had my wish, we would continue combination therapies in prevention, ultimately. We would bring antigens for antigenic tolerance in the mix. Mark and I used to call it the holy grail, <laughs> how to bring this forward. I think we will discuss it. Some people ask what is needed to bring them to the clinic, probably in my opinion, biomarkers. But that's a bit how I see that. Thank you, Matthias. Um, maybe I want to spend the last five minutes of this active discussion before moving on to the questions from the audience with a closing remarks from your side and a bit of your vision. You know, if you had all the tools and possibilities in your hands, what would be the next things that you would ask and study in your fields of uh, you know, interest? <laughs> Ominously quiet. It's a big <laughs> Sorry. Well, I mean, I, happy happy to go out and, mm -hmm. and go out blasting here. Um, just just as a I, I full disclosure, my university asked me to do these things. I actually started two companies recently, and uh, one co-founder. Um, one actually is interested in doing drug discovery using our stem cell derived cells. And, and that can be cost-used to uh, identify molecules that would make beta cells better for type 1 and type 2 diabetes. The second one is uh, a company that has to do with something that I feel is, is filling the need for the next generation of cells, stem cell, dry cells, and that would be including what we call nanosensors into uh, our cells. And, and the reason for that is that right now, what we do is we transplant cells. Islet transplantation is a good example of that. And then we walk away from this. And then the next thing we know, if it's failing, is that the CPAP blood levels are coming down, but there's nothing in between. So we're developing this, this company. Again, it's called, uh, it's, it's called Minusha. It's developing nanosensors to be able to read out biological activity. So for example, is a cell under immune assault or not? And that immediately becomes then an actionable item because our, our physician colleagues uh, could go in and modify the immune suppressive regimen, for example. So I think that that is something where, again, we're building on this potential of these stem cells by just going to the next thing. It's essentially just putting a GPS into these cells, being able to understand how they do, how they form, perform, how, um, if they are under any kind of duress, any kind of stress, and then to alleviate this. I think that is, is, is one of the next new frontiers. And again, I think the stem cell technology allows us to go into this. Thank you. I'm going to go next because I know that it's better if Matthias goes last because he's uh, he has that kind of contemplative philosophical uh, comment. <laughs> um, so for me, it's 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 pretty much what I said. I, I I have a couple of clinical trials in me. Actually, one of them will be done out of King's College London and is a um, um, uh, uh, an antigen specific therapy that I've been working on for a while. My colleagues there are taking that forward. Um, and and then I would I would dearly love to to you know put an, an immunotherapy frontline for type one diabetes through through Sanofi. Um, it, it as I've said there are challenges. So so we don't we know that that's that's um, 
something that, that, that needs to be done and, and will not be easy, but that's my goal. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so if, if we had any every money in the world and a complete empty slate, uh, I, I would like to do more in antigen-specific tolerance, probably. We have one platform with the DNA immunotherapy that's now in the clinic. Um, I, I would really like to see that to go fully in prevention alone or in combination uh, with a suitable uh, combination drug partner in, in, in the sense, beta cell or induction therapy. It would be good uh, actually, and, and Mark has already alluded to that, to cross learn from other diseases. Uh, we should maybe do some more learning from diseases that are very similar like alopecia in pathology, because it's in the skin. We can access things more easier than in, in the pancreas and type one diabetes. When it comes to stem cells, uh, my wish would be to really sort out that beta cell immune interface maybe with some 3D in vitro technology to see what do we really need to modify? What is nice to have? Um, there's many things we still need to understand. Mark brought it up in the beginning, NK cells, what might they contribute in these scenarios, B cells? We don't know precisely how they might contribute in these crosstalks and some of this, maybe we can also sort out in vitro. So that's sort of my wish list for the next five to 10 years, it's gonna be bucket stuff to do. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for your comments. Now I'll pass it back to Sue, who has been picking questions from the audience uh, for you to answer. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. Uh, the audience has actually been very engaged, and there's lots of questions here. We have about 15 minutes left, so we'll see which ones we can get to. Um, here is one very interesting one. What is your opinion on genetically edited pig islets for diabetes research and therapy? Um, maybe we'll start perhaps with Professor Hebrock. Look, it's it's um, it's it's a xenotherapy, meaning you're starting out with a uh, you're coming from a different species. Uh, there has been a lot of work done in in also genetically modifying, as as I think the question was already alluding to, uh, molecules that would make it less um, recognizable by the um, immune system, the human immune system of, of patients um, with with diabetes. And the benefit is you can generate a lot of those. They are very similar in terms of functionality, but not identical to what we have in our human body. So it's, it's, it's quite good, but not, not perfect. Um, being able to produce as many as you want, not having to rely on cadaveric donors is great. Getting something that is, is a fully differentiated cell in its own species is, is a good thing being able to use genetic tools to modify or eliminate any kind of immune recognition molecules is, is great as well. So I don't want to say that this is not an alternative. I think it falls in the same category that Mark had said before. It's, it's a parallel thing that we should explore. Now, at the end of the day, and, and this is just my, my personal opinion, at the, at the end of the day, um, there is no reason for us not to generate a fully mature beta or islet cells coming out of stem cells. Why wouldn't we be able to do this? We've come, you know, nine tenths of the way, if not further. So the last step should be possible to do. And at the end, then you're going to have cells out of your own species. So that, but that is my personal opinion. Uh, again, there, there are clear advantages of using pig islands as well. They have their own problems, as we just discussed. So, you know. Okay. There you go. Anyone else opinion on that, or shall I move on? I'll move on to the next question. So this is a multi-part question. I believe we touched on this a bit already, but 
Um, what do you think is needed to succeed in applying immune tolerances to approach to cure type one diabetes? Are there any learnings from the efforts to develop COVID-19 vaccines? For example, how to incentivize academic and industry partners to collaborate in achieving such goals in a defined short time? Uh, perhaps we'll start with uh, Professor Peekman on this. Yeah, so there's obviously two parts to that question. One is about structures um, and, and funding. Uh, you know, obviously a lot of money was, was put into, into COVID-19. And yeah, for sure, that's going to make a difference. If we had access to that kind of leverage, we, we'd be in a different place. So that, that becomes a, a political question. Um, people have to lobby. People have to really want it. In the UK, we found that to be tough. Um, at a political level, because generally governments don't want to, 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 to get involved in that kind of um, sort of partisan lobbying. Um, so, so, so I think, you know, it'd be good to get the North American view, but for, for me, that's going to be, that's going to be tough because T1D, you know, we all know it's a big priority, but, but governments don't and, and they won't necessarily respond. Um, I think we all alluded to this, that, that the joint working is, is probably where it's at um, and that, you know, these, these consortia really work. Let's, you know, let's, um, let's see where the, the, the technology and understanding gaps are. And I think we have highlighted uh, one today, which is really around this, this microcosm of the, the beta cell and the immune, and the immune system. Um, we haven't got the right people in the room or in the right labs together. So, so that's probably where I would be putting my efforts, but it's probably gonna take a, you know, a, a Bill Gates or a Helmsley, somebody with, with that kind of mindset, I don't think governments are gonna do this. Yeah, and I, 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 being antigenic tolerance, being very close to my heart, I think there, there, there is a concerted effort needed, just like Mark says, but there is efforts that are very good. For example, we need a biomarker that gives us tolerance, either be this after an induction therapy, then followed by an antigen or an antigen alone. And Mark has been very active with Inodia and there's Trialnet in the US who are looking for these markers. And then should we have a marker or some, it becomes really exciting because look at what happened with COVID. I wouldn't, if you would have asked me a year ago that we have RNA vaccines with the efficacy we're having now in that speed, I would have said absolutely impossible. That's all wishful thinking. And look at what science has done. I find this very amazing. And there's been a recent paper from the, from the teams at BioNTech uh, who made one of the RNA vaccines who want to use this platform now to induce tolerance. So it's a genetically encoded way of inducing tolerance and autoimmunity. And I think this collaborations, that this is really the next horizon. We take the latest technology that has worked in virus vaccines, and then we see whether with probably many modifications, we could use some of these learnings for antigenic tolerance with a proper marker. And it could open up uh, whole new avenues, how, how we go about uh, establishing tolerance. Also then ultimately for uh, having a palatable therapy for uh, stem cell derived islets and so forth. Let me just very briefly chime in there and, and say that the, 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 the type one field has uh, received significant funds from the NIH, but also from outstanding foundations like the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, the Helmsley Trust, just to name a few, and I know I'm forgetting some here. So there is a, a really fantastic community out there that supports it. Having said this, if you give, if you double my budget, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna work twice as fast. It's as simple as that. We are underfunded <laughs> right now. You know, if you give me ten times more, there's a plateau. No, I probably couldn't do it. Not for the space that we have at the university. But doubling, even tripling, we would we would go three times faster. And yes, working together with other institutions like that are being represented here by Noah and, and Sanofi, as well as Biotech, I I think is the way forward. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much. Here is another question. Um, how are other cell types like alpha or delta cells involved in the pathogenesis of type 1 diabetes? Um, perhaps Dr. Von Herreth, we'll start with you on this. Well, uh, I'm going to pass this over to my, the other Matthias in just a second. It's a, it's a complicated question. Probably a very important we see at least in some of the donor pancreatic that the alpha cells get left alone maybe just because there's not as many epitopes being immune recognized that leaves uh, the alpha beta cell crosstalk open and dysregulated which is probably not good at all because if you only have alpha cells left there was also a paper from Al Powers uh, saying that the pathogenesis of type 1 diabetes is very much centered around the alpha cells. So I think other cell types, we, we have to have an eye on them. They also look sick in the pancreatus, at least when you say they're upregulating MHC class 1. Uh, in our studies, they produce certain cytokines. So they're, they're, they're not uh, uh, separate entities that don't play a role in the disease. But uh, Matthias, please. Yeah, I mean, you just nailed it. Uh, look, we think there's a it's, it's a triangle. Actually, the delta cell is sitting on top, being able to regulate the insulin secretion as well as the glucagon secretion, actually stopping it, both of us. The alpha and the beta cell talk to each other as well because what you, you have to just realize how tightly we are regulating our glucose levels under normal conditions, right? I mean, if you... You are usually in a range with 70 is already kind of low, right? And 120 is, is kind of high. And, and so this milligram-pedesolator sugar we have in our body. You need to, if, if you just send out one, one hormone, the glucose levels will drop. That's why you have an antagonistic hormone coming from the alpha cells, the glucagon, to be able to rise it again. And then you have to modulate this in a wave pattern. So essentially it, it, it goes back to normal. Super, super... Uh, important uh, yeah. and integrated and, and the orchestration of how these cells talk to each other. There's a reason why they're together sitting in an islet. And we are, with our stem cell technologies, actually generating mini islets, not just beta cells. It's very important to look at these cells. I guess, I, you know, it just makes me think uh, from hearing you, you, you too, that um, the thing it tells us really is, is the beta cell is is the target, um, and and so it's not about. It may not be about cells. It it may be really about molecules and antigens, and 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 that's kind of what we always thought. But it but it it's it's an additional proof of that. So um, I, I I take it that way. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. I believe we have quite time for one more question, and it is the following. What elicits clinically overt diabetes when still 90% of beta cell mass is present? Is it in an inflammatory environment affecting beta cell function? Uh, perhaps we'll start with uh, Professor Peekman on this one. Um, you know, I guess I guess what, what, what we are at there is the tipping point and the fact that um, some restoration of homeostasis can can 
uh, you know, can allow some patients to experience the so-called honeymoon when, when their diabetes is easier to control and there's probably more endogenous C-peptide around and then it will decline again. We've just completed a very interesting study in Enodia, uh, taking very early um, uh, samples and showing that there is this restoration. Actually, there's a, there's a reversal of the decline in the first three months that's, that's been talked about before. So um, I, I think, you know, I think we're just flip-flopping at the limit at that point. Um, and uh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say there's anything particularly magical about that. It's just what happens when systems fail. Um, you know, whatever, whatever organ you're looking at, but, but that's, that's a not very educated view. Um, maybe the others have a better, better education on this. Well, I mean, there's a, there's something about the in vivo environment and it's probably like Mark says, multifactorial, um, which then leads to this cataclysmic lack of function of the beta cells, some of which can be regained if you establish peace on certain aspects of this cataclysmic failure. Most notably, as I mentioned, you take the beta cells out, they can, they can regain function. So the in vivo context is detrimental, whether that's only immune or whether it's immune and metabolic or immune metabolic and neuronal, and that's hard to sort out. I think it would be wise to say it's probably a multifactorial where reasonably the immune system would play a role, of course, as well. Okay, well, I believe we are actually coming up on the top of the hour now. Um, so we are coming to the end of this very informative roundtable. Many, many thanks to these wonderful panelists, uh, Professor Hebrock, Professor Von Heireth, Professor Peekman, and Dr. Yeseldig. And thank you, all of the attendees, for attending and participating today. We hope you found it informative, and we hope you sign up for our free news digest and join us again in June for our next roundtable. Thank you again. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for having us. It was great. Thank you. Yes. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.